1989, a Philadelphia financial advisor by the name of Donald Shear found himself wandering the aisles of a flea market in Adamstown, Pennsylvania. I don't know whether Shear made this a habit or whatever, but on that particular day in 1989, he glanced over in the corner and spotted a picture frame that particularly intrigued him. In fact, as soon as he saw it, he knew exactly what it was that he wanted to put inside the picture frame. It wasn't the crappy painting that was in it, that's for sure. The painting was ripped and he knew as soon as he got it home, he was going to pull the painting out and use the frame for a project that he had in mind. And so he grabbed the painting and took it to the cashier and handed over the $4 and took it home. See, wrestled with it in his garage trying to get the painting out of the frame the entire frame just kind of disintegrated in his hands he was annoyed it was a four dollar piece of garbage until he noticed that in the process of wrestling with the frame a piece of paper had slid out from behind the painting caught in between the canvas and the wood backing and had fallen onto the floor it was folded up and it looked quite old and as Uh, Sheer unfolded it, he realized that he was staring at one of the original 500 copies of the Declaration of Independence, printed on July 4th, 1776. There were only 24 known copies in existence, only three of them owned by private individuals. Sheer took this piece of paper and spent the next two years getting it authenticated. And in 1991, that version, his copy of the document of the Declaration of Independence was sold at auction by Sotheby's for $2.42 million. It was sold again in 2000 for $8.14 million. All from a $4 picture frame that fell apart in his hands. And Jesus says in Matthew 13, the kingdom of God is a little bit like that. We've been going through this series on the parables of Jesus, all of which are told in my reading of Matthew anyway, to answer a single question. And the question is this, if if Jesus is who he says he is, if he's been endowed with the power and authority of God in everything that he says and in everything that he does to bring healing and forgiveness and hope and restoration to the world, why aren't more people responding to the message of Jesus? Why is Jesus experiencing so much apathy and even opposition in his ministry, especially in the chapters just leading up to Matthew 13? We ask the same kind of question, although we phrase it a little bit differently. We would say something like, if God is love and Jesus is who Jesus claims to be, then why is the world such a mess? It's the problem of pain, the question of evil, the objection of injustice. And in Matthew 13, Jesus has three answers that he offers in parable form. The first answer is this. It's not a problem with the message, it's people's hearts that are the problem. There are some folks whose hearts are hard and they just flat out reject the message of Jesus. They want to have nothing to do with what Jesus is all about. There are some people who seem to want what Jesus is about, but they they live a, a faith that's very shallow and when times get tough, the tough actually get going. 
Some people live with a really sincere and genuine faith, but they live cluttered and distracted lives, and eventually all the other distractions choke out the life of the faith that they're trying to nurture in their spirit. There's a, there's a problem, Jesus says, with people's hearts. The second answer he gives is there is a problem in the world, and that's called the enemy. That there's someone else in the world who is as hard at work as Jesus is trying to sabotage what God is doing in the world through Jesus by the Spirit in the church. The enemy is sowing the seeds of evil in and among the work that God is trying to do in the world. He is sowing the seeds of weeds among the wheat. Not, as Jeff said, weed. Enemy's not growing weed, he's growing weeds planting evil in and among the goodness of what God is doing that's bearing black and toxic fruit that's poisoning humanity and God's creation. The third answer Jesus gives is the reason the kingdom doesn't appear to be doing as well as you would hope is that your expectation is off. This is the way the kingdom works. The kingdom begins as something small as a mustard seed. It begins as something as hidden as yeast being kneaded into a lump of dough. But it becomes in time and with patience in the process, it becomes something that is all pervasive, something that grows into into a tree that is magnificent and glorious. The kingdom is coming. It's just coming differently than you thought it would. Well, Jesus finishes his discourse in answering the question of why isn't the kingdom coming more than it is with two more parables starting in verse 44. Matthew 13, 44, it says this, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all that he had, and he bought the field. We, we've been in a, this field pretty well the entire series. We started by sowing seeds in the field and then watching the weed and the weeds, the wheat and the weeds grow in the field and then watching the growth mature to a tree in the field. And now we focus on a servant at work in the field and the servant going about the task of his daily routine ends up in a corner of the field where all of a sudden his toe stubs against a piece of wood, a box that is poking out of the ground. And as soon as the servant sees it, he knows exactly what he's looking at. In a world without banks and safety deposit boxes, in a world without offshore accounts, in a world without investment advisors or even mattresses, there was only one place where you can store your valuables in a way that's going to keep them safe. You take it and put it in a box and you bury it somewhere in your property. Um, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in 1947, there was one scroll found in one of the caves that archaeologists now call the Copper Scroll. The only thing written on the copper scroll are directions to all of the places where the gold and the silver and the precious valuables have been buried. And the scroll was hidden in a cave. This is how you protect your stuff. In 2006, there was a contractor by the name of Bob Kitts. He was working on an 83-year-old home in Cleveland, Ohio, right close to the shore of Lake Erie. As he was renovating the bathroom, bashing out the 
the drywall in the bathroom wall, he noticed a wire hanging down from behind the medicine cabinet and has grabbed the wire and pulled it up. What he discovered tied to the bottom of the wire were two metal lock boxes with a return address taped to the front of one. And inside the two lock boxes were $182,000 of depression era money. <laughs> Kitts mentioned it to the new owner of the home who got into a big fight with him about what to do with the money. They ended up going to court and the judge ordered them to track down the original owner's descendants and to distribute the money among the people who rightfully owned it. He should have kept his mouth shut. He should have done what the servant did. He should have just plastered up the wall, went home and wrote an offer for the house, because the servant finding this box, whether by erosion or a shovel hits the box or whatever, the servant knows that if he pulls that box out of the ground, one of two things has to happen. He's got to give it back to the owner and lose possession of the treasure, or he's got to carry it home himself and legally brand himself a thief, neither of which he wants to do. So he buries the box, goes home, sells everything he has, and puts in an offer on the farm, contents and all. And when his offer is accepted, he celebrates because he just won the lottery. Second story, verse 45. It says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything and bought it. The story is exactly the same. It's just the main character and the setting are different. This time, the main character is a merchant of fine pearls. Pearls, this is a man who deals in high-end precious stones. And by the way, in the ancient world, the pearl was the most valuable precious stone there was. It was the equivalent of modern-day diamonds. We would tell the story about him finding a diamond. They told the story of him finding a pearl. In fact, there's an ancient Persian song called the hymn of the pearl and it's about a man who literally travels halfway across the world for a single pearl to bring it back to his family. No, 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 this guy... He knows pearls. In fact, he deals in fine pearls. He has high-end clientele. And he's in with a dealer one day with one of his distributors. And he's examining the stuff that's available. And in the pile that the, the distributor's trying to sell, he notices a single pearl in and amongst the midst and immediately recognizes its rarity. It's, in, it's incomparable value. It is exorbitantly priced. But this dealer, this merchant knows that this dealer that he's buying from has no idea the true value of that pearl. He knows that he could pay full price for that pearl and that his clientele would enter into a bidding war, driving the price up. He was going to retire off of the sale of this one single gem. So he goes home and he sells everything that he has. And he buys the pearl knowing that it was the most sure fire gamble he'd ever made. In a sense, the, the parables pick up right where we left off last week. The parable of the treasure buried in the field, like the yeast, is a, a parable of unnoticed hiddenness that has an unanticipated potency or value. The parable of the pearl is a parable of ignored 
smallness that has an unrecognized potential or value. Remember, this whole series is about answering the question, if God is love and Jesus is who he says he is, why on earth is the world such a mess? And the answer that Jesus gives in this parable is the reason the world appears to be a mess is because not everybody knows what it is that they're looking at. Not everybody has an eye trained to spot the thing of inestimable value. I think the parable is inviting us to become people who look at the world differently. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, it says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. What, what Paul is saying is that people who look at the world through eyes of faith, they don't see the same world that everybody else sees. They don't live on the same planet as everybody else. It's like, it's like people who are in love. You know, they just live in this sort of alternate reality, this parallel universe while they walk in and around amongst the rest of us. Not to say the rest of us are not also in love. Uh, my wife is here this morning. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, they see the world differently where everybody else sees, when they look at the world, they see the absence of God, the distance of God from a world of evil and pain. People who look at the world with eyes of faith see the presence of God lurking just behind the curtain. They see the presence of God joining us in the midst of the evil and pain to bring comfort and redemption into our experience. Everyone else, when they look at themselves in the mirror, they see one of two things. They see their own greatness rising above the brokenness of the world or they see their own brokenness unworthy of the greatness of the world. When people of faith look in the mirror, what they see is Jesus in them, embracing them in the midst of their brokenness and remaking them into the greatness of the image of God. When most people look at the human family, they see a, a world that's falling apart for selfishness and self-centeredness and apathy and hate. Those are not the eyes of faith. The eyes of faith see a world that is brimming with hope. People committed to living lives of love, living in faithfulness and kindness with each other, living in compassion and generosity against all odds, people of faith just see the world differently. And I believe that one of the things that Jesus is inviting us into in these stories is to become people who can see the kingdom of God in ways that other people don't. I mean, that's what these two characters are all about. This is the one thing these characters have is that they are people with vision. They're people who see, one who sees something that everybody misses, the other one who's actually searching, who the Greek word literally means is on the lookout, who's on the lookout to see what everybody else has not seen. And because they are people who see, they become people who respond. Their lives get turned inside out and upside down in joy and contentment and gratitude in response to what it is that they've seen. I think Jesus is inviting us 
to become people who see. People who look at the world like the, the magic eye painting that I put up there in the first week of this series. People who learn to look beyond the surface of the world, who look deeper than that, who look, in a sense, who look through the world to see the hidden revelation of what God is doing in and around us all the time. People who see the fingerprints of God all over their life. To see a God who is there and in and around and active in their life. And to, to, um, to know the, the joy of what it is to live in a relationship of love and intimacy with the God of the universe. We're being invited to see the fingerprints of God all over our lives. To see ourselves as God sees us. Mosaic art, <laughs> beauty in the midst of and in spite of and at times even because of the brokenness that we experience. He's inviting us to see um, the human family around us the way God sees. As individual and communal revelations of the goodness and the truth and the beauty about what God is like in spite of and in the midst of and sometimes because of the brokenness of the human family. To, to come to the place where we believe in the core of our being that life together is something worth dying for. He invites us to see the world the way God sees it. As revealing the truth and the beauty and the goodness of God in everything and to be those who are eager to tirelessly putting Humpty back together again. Not because we're deluded, not because we're hopeless romantics, but because we've learned to see with eyes of faith and recognize the beauty and the value of what God is doing in our midst. Because if the story says, if, if we can become people who can see the beauty of what God is doing in the world, we'll become people who, who respond. Right, this is exactly what happens to these two men. The man sees the treasure in the field and what is his response? In joy he goes and sells everything he has and he buys the field. The merchant sees the pearl of inestimable value and what he does is he goes and sells everything he has and he buys the pearl. But when they see the value, when they see the beauty of, that nobody else sees, the kingdom of God in front of them, they're, they're instantaneous, immediate, urgent, unquestioning, no-brainer response is to buy in with their whole heart, with everything they have. It's the vision that compels the buy-in. I remember years ago listening to a pastor talking to, about a conversation he had with somebody who leads a local chapter of AA. He said, to explain to me the difference between people who relapse in their addiction and people who work their way through to sobriety and the, the leader of the chapter of AA. I mean, there were many answers he could have given, but the answer he gave was this. He said, some people come to our meetings and enter into recovery because they just don't want to be drunk anymore. They're sick of the life that they have. And those people, he said, always relapse. He said, there are some people who come, though, 
because they've caught a vision of what life would be like were they to get sober. They've caught a vision of a life where they've gotten their kids back. Those people fight their way through to sobriety. It's the vision that inspires the buy-in. See, I think... When we struggle buying into this kingdom vision that Jesus is offering us, and we all struggle, some of us struggle all of the time, all of us struggle some of the time, when we struggle to buy into this kingdom vision of the life that Jesus is offering us, life in a love relationship with God, in love with ourselves, in in a real healthy way, in love with each other, and communally loving the world, when we are hesitant to buy into that vision, it's because It's not because we're rebellious. It's not because we have a failure of will or we're bad people or we should be ashamed of ourselves as Christians. It's because we haven't captured the vision of a life lived in relationship with God, of the joy of living in love with God and being loved by God. We haven't captured that sense of con- the contentment that comes by being made whole and being made holy, the person that God, that Jesus always dreamed that we could be. We haven't captured the, the vision of, of the, what it means, the gratitude that we would experience of living a life of being loved and loving in return, of life-giving, life-sustaining spiritual friendships and community with those with whom we are safe to be ourselves, who are going to walk with us to become the people that Jesus has destined us to become. We haven't captured that sense of meaning and purpose that comes out of knowing that we get the chance To be Jesus to a world in pain. And when we lose that vision, we end up just playing with faith. Dabbling in a relationship with God. Tinkering with our devotion to Christ. Playing with spiritual friendships. Playing with relationships. And treating uh, our engagement in being the love of God to a world in pain like a hobby. Something we maybe will get around to if we have the time. When we capture the vision, that's what compels us to fully buy in no matter the cost, right? This is the dynamic of the story. These guys buy in to this vision that they've captured, but in order to buy in, they have to sell out, right? They have to sell everything they have. The price to receive the life that God is promising in the person of Jesus, the price tag on that is everything, right? I I think about it, In terms of marriage, because in the 18 years that I've been doing this, I've had a chance to talk to a lot of couples. And it seems to me that with some relative frequency, engaged couples think that they're entering into marriage because marriage would be an amazing thing to add to their life. 
that a spouse, having a spouse in my life would just be like the cherry on top of the Sunday of my life. It would just be the icing on the cake. Having a spouse, adding a spouse to my life would make my life amazing, right, is the mentality that I'll continue to live the life that I've been living. I'll just have a spouse to live it with. And what couples don't realize sometimes until too late is that in order to obtain a married life, you have to trade in your single life. All of it. You hand in your life such as it is. You hand in your life, including everything you love. You hand that in when they hand you a marriage license. You are trading one for the other. You're trading up. (laughs) But don't make the mistake. You are trading it in. You are giving up everything about the life that you knew in order to obtain this life that you want. And I'm nearly 12 years into the journey, which isn't forever, but it's long enough for me to say, I have never, ever, ever regretted making the trade. And neither did these dudes. This was the most surefire gamble they had ever made in their lives. To them, they were prepared to mortgage their future, to abandon their agenda, to throw away the playbook, to liquidate life as they knew it. For the sure fire lottery ticket of obtaining the life that Jesus offers. And they did it, it says in verse 44, with joy. With joy went and sold all that he had. It's not an obligation, it's not a burden, it's not a guilt thing, it's not a should of, it's not begrudgingly saying, yeah, I know I really should give God more of my time, I know I should give God more of my money, I know I should give God more of my energy, I know I should invest more, I know I should care more, I know I should prioritize this more. This is about being captivated by the vision of a life that God wants to give you as a gift. And seeing it for what it is in joy and enthusiasm and anticipation. Dropping everything you're holding in your hands to grab a hold of this life that Jesus is holding out in his. So this is the question. How is your vision of the kingdom How clearly are you able to see this life that Jesus is offering you in all of its beauty and all of its glory? A life of loving God and loving yourself and loving the people around you so that together we can all love the world with the love of God. How clear is your vision of the kingdom? And secondly then, how ready are you in joy to reshuffle every other priority that you have to make this the one thing 
this is, this is what strikes me. The, the moment these guys purchase the farm and the pearl, that is the only thing in the world they have. How willing are you to reshuffle every priority in your life to obtain the one thing, the gift that God is holding out. In the words of Jesus, life until it overflows. The one thing that will truly bring joy. Let's pray together. Jesus, we come again to one of these passages that is ultimately an invitation. Ultimately, you um, just laying it out there and saying, please embrace this. Um, we, We read one just in the spring. It says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. Here you say, look and see what it is that I offer. Who wouldn't want to drop everything for this life that you're holding out? And yet, God, there are some here this morning, and you're here. You know who you are. There's some here, God, who are just pushing you away. For whom that life is too much of a gamble. It's too much of a risk. It feels like there's too much at stake. There's too much to lose. I'm not ready to give up this life that I have for this theoretical life that Jesus offers. God, would you give us a clearer vision than that? Would you help us know and to tap into in our hearts the the joy and the gratitude and the contentment and the life that would come if we'd be willing to drop everything we have, reshuffle our priorities in order to make priority of the one thing that matters. Would you give us the eyes to see the joy of anticipation and the eagerness to respond, to sell everything we have, just to have all of you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.